is our passage today. And, and I want to begin kind of in, a, in, in an interesting way. Our, our text today is really about the foolishness of trying to fight God. There's a lot of stories, there's a lot of sermons that can be taken from this chapter. There's an incredible sermon about prayer in this chapter. There's an incredible sermon about the, the providence and, and the favor of God in this sermon. And, and there's an incredible sermon about judgment and opposing God. And, and as I read it and I thought about it and how to tie all of this together, I really saw this theme about the foolishness of trying to fight God that is highlighted throughout this chapter. Now, in 1986, in July of 1986, Mike Tyson was in the prime of his fighting career. I don't know if we have any boxing fans here, but in 1986, Tyson and uh, Marvis Frazier were going to fight. And, and Marvis Frazier was the son of the boxing legend Smokin' Joe Frazier. And, um, and, 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 and Joe Frazier had really hyped this thing. Joe Frazier had raised his son to be his protege. He was kind of in some way extending his career through his son. And he set up this fight and, and, I mean, it's just funny, all the news media and the hype and, and, and you know, Joe Frazier talking about how his son is just going to whoop Mike Tyson and he's so much better than Mike Tyson. And, and the one thing you probably remember about this fight, even if you're not one that would follow boxing regularly, is it's one of the worst heavyweight fights that's ever taken place because Tyson defeated Frazier with a total knockout in 30 seconds. I mean, it was, it, it was just unbelievable, and it was done. Uh, all that money, all that hype, all that publicity, all those people, and you show up, and, and it's just, it's over. Um, as, as bad as that fight was, as much as it was a fool's errand that, that Smoke and Joe had set his son up to fight against Mike Tyson, there are people throughout history who have in their foolishness tried to fight against God. This morning uh, we're going to look at one. As you look throughout scripture you see the foolishness of individuals that try to fight God who think that they could win against him. You think of Pharaoh in the Old Testament who thought he could fight against God. He could fight against God's people and fight against God's word. It ended up costing him his honor, his people, his slaves and his son, and ultimately his own life. The Bible tells us in Joshua 12 that during the days of Joshua and Moses as they went to conquer the land and left from Egypt, that 31 kings, 31 nations, 31 kings had stood against Joshua and against Moses. And they had all been defeated. The most powerful nations of the world of that day had stood against God's people and God defeated them. And it wasn't because of the might of Israel's armies. It wasn't because of the ingenuity of Israel's armies. I mean, we all know the, the, the fight in Jericho, right? They, they marched around and blew horns. It was because they were fighting against the Almighty. In the Old Testament, there is one individual who stands out as particularly evil his name is Sennacherib. In 2 Kings, it tells us about him. He was the king of Assyria. 
And he had encamped around the people of God, and he had boasted, and he had threatened. And his army was much greater than God's people. And it looked as though he was going to ravage the city. And 2 Kings 19 tells us this, tells us about what happened. It came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred, four score, and five thousand. 185,000 of their army died in the night. When they arose early in the morning, they were all, there were dead bodies everywhere. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroth, his god, that his sons smote him with the sword. This man boldly stood up against God, encamped an army around God's people, gloated at how he was going to destroy them, and God destroyed him. Back in verse 22, it, it's made clear, it says, who, God speaks and says, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? even against the God of Israel. Sennacherib, one of the most mighty kings of the world, lost against God. And the truth is, all who stand against God will lose. It is a foolish task to stand against God. One of the families that we read about in the New Testament that stand against God particularly here early in Acts, is the Herodian family, the family of the Herods. Uh, If you look at verse 1 of chapter 12, it introduces you here. It says, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, Herod was not just a person. Herod was a family of people. The first Herod is known as Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of Israel at the time when Jesus is born. Herod the Great is the one who issues that all of the small male children should be killed because he fears that a greater king will arise. He's the one that that spoke with uh, with the wise men and hosted them. Herod the Great uh, received this opportunity from Rome You see, Israel was a very difficult place to maintain the peace that Rome wanted to maintain. They had conquered the area, but but Rome had a, a way that what they would do is they would come in and they would conquer an area, and then for the privilege of Rome to conquer you and make sure that no one else conquers you, you got to pay taxes to Rome. Isn't that a great deal? And Rome then would maintain the peace so that no one else would come in and no one from within would rise up. And Israel showed itself to be a very difficult place because they had, uh, they had a, a, a unique call from God for their land and for their government. And so Rome constantly fought against Israelites that would rise up and, and fight against them. And so uh, Herod ends up, he's a, he comes from a prestigious family with a lineage there, and, and, and he figures out a way then to convince Caesar to allow him to rule over Israel. 
And so for generations, the Herods are the ones who, on Rome's behalf, rule Jerusalem. They, they rule Israel. And so at this time, Herod the Great has passed. He, he had ten wives and a lot of kids. And so uh, there's lots of the Herod family that we read about in the New Testament. The, 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 the one who follows him is Herod Agrippa. That's who we see here in chapter 12. Herod Agrippa is the one who on Rome's behalf, on behalf of Caesar, is ruling Jerusalem, is ruling the area. And now, an important thing to realize, and this text reveals it, Herod was not, the, the Herods were not overly religious people, they were political people. He didn't so much care about what the church was teaching, what he cared about was making the Jews happy, making the Jews quiet, making the Jews peaceful, so that then he could advance in Roman society. And so we come to this text, and we come to this text about uh, this man who, who leads the nation and leads the nation against Jesus Christ, tries to put out the church to please the Jews, and fights God. And we see in his life an example of the foolishness of what it is at any level to fight God. There's three big points. The first one's got a lot of sub-points. And the first one is this. It is foolish to fight God because you cannot destroy God's people. It is foolish to fight God because you cannot destroy God's people. Look at verse, look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Here we have the first death of an apostle. James, the brother of John. We have the, the first death. We're not given a whole lot about it. The, the thought that he killed him with a sword probably means that he faced a tribunal, a religious tribunal, and he was found guilty. And so then they executed him with the sword. Herod is involved. It is, uh, it is an official act. And we see the first martyr the problem is, is that you can't just kill God's people and stop God's plan. That's the first sub-point here. You cannot destroy God's people first because they have God's presence. You cannot destroy God's people because they have God's presence. So they killed James, the brother of John. You can imagine this was probably a very sad experience for the church. Of course, up to this point, the apostles have been arrested, and they've either been let go, or they've been beaten, or, or God has released them for jail. But here, in God's plan, he allows that this first apostle returns home first with Jesus. And, and it's foolishness for those who oppose God to try to kill Christians, and there's two reasons why. First... Christians are not afraid of death. They're, they're, they're not afraid of death. Truly, a, a Christian should not be afraid of death, particularly persecution as death. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says this, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. One of the best things you can do to a Christian is kill them. 
They get to go see Jesus. That's what they long for anyways. Second, killing Christians is foolish because it only encourages faithfulness and evangelism. It only encourages faithfulness and evangelism. And and we see this throughout church history. We'll see this here in this very text. When the church faces persecution and, and the comforts of the world become difficult for the church and the world becomes against the church and the church realizes that they are the church and the church begins to act like the church and the church begins to pray like the church. Bill, you sung something about that. What you see is the church become pure and the church become powerful. There's a famous quote from one of the early church fathers, and it's this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And truly, we see that. You'll see that throughout Acts. You'll see that throughout church history. That as Rome clamped down on Christians, as Rome began to execute Christians, as Rome sent Christians into hiding and underground, the church exploded with faithfulness and with evangelism. If you want to kill the church, make it comfortable. I mean, honestly, let them think that they can enjoy the world. But standing against the church, trying to to kill the church, trying to, to overtly make life hard on the church and on God's people is a fool's errand. Because God's people have God's presence. They can take my life, but they can never separate me from the love of God. Amen? Secondly, you can't destroy God's people because they have God's peace. They know God's presence, and they have God's peace. (laughs) I love this. I told you this story is a lot of fun, all right? Here here comes the fun part. Look at verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest, but so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We'll we'll get to the prayer next. Verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound to change and sentries before the door were guarding the prison so herod sees that killing james made him popular with the jews and so he's want, he wants to raise the ante and so he says if james killing james was something what will they think if i kill peter the head guy of the church at this point. The rock upon whom which Christ will build his church, he said. The main apostle. And so he arrests him and he intends to kill him. Not only does he arrest him and intend to kill him, but he does it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He wants to do it at a time when everybody's in Jerusalem. All the Jews are there. All of them are gathered. And he can kill Peter and he can make a public spectacle of it and say, how great am I? That's his plan. We make plans and often God laughs. And man, does God laugh at this plan. But what you've got to love is, uh, Peter has been arrested. 
Peter knows the severity of what's happened. James has just been killed by the sword. He knows that he's going to face trial. Not only does he know that he's going to face trial, but this time they put Peter basically in maximum security. There are 16 soldiers charged to watch over him. He is chained to two soldiers at all times, and they go in different shifts. They're at the doors. They're chained next to him. He can't get away. Herod has done everything that he can to threaten and intimidate and ensure that he will seek to destroy God's church. And you just got to love this. Peter sleeps like a baby. <laughs> Did you catch that? He, he sleeps like a baby. He's not worried. <laughs> okay, babies wake up, but you, you know the phrase. He's out. He is so out that we're going to see he escapes in a stupor, not even fully awake. He is out. I can't imagine being chained to two people. Like, it's enough when both of the dogs snuggle up at night, right? He's chained to two people, and he is out. You can only do that when you have God's peace. He's not worried. He's not fretting. He, he just has God's peace. How wonderful it is that we can walk through life and we can walk through the difficulties at life and at night we can pray. We can give it to God and we can trust God and we can sleep knowing that it's in God's hands. Friends, I know that's difficult at some times. I know we face a lot of anxiety in life, but I want you to realize that if you're a believer, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. And, and at the end of the day, we are, to, we are to work hard. We are to do all that God has done. We are to strive in holiness. But at the end of the day, we are to trust in the Lord. And by trusting in the Lord, we will have God's peace. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious, anxious about anything, but instead in every situation with prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your request to God, and the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. That's what we see in this story. In the midst of, of, of Herod's worst, Peter sleeps. The, the third reason why you can't destroy God's people is they have God's ear. They, they know how to pray, and God listens and, and responds. And we see this. Go back to, to verse 5. It says here, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him, was made to God by the church. James has been killed. Peter's on death row. And so you can imagine the church is, they're activated. And so what do they do? But they do the thing that's most powerful. They pray. They pray. The first thing anyone ought to do when a difficult time comes is to pray. They knew that with prayer comes power. I'm afraid we've forgot this. We want to get busy. We want to, we want to, we want to do something to, uh, to, to go on social media and, and get everybody, raise awareness. 
We, we want to do all of these things in our own effort, in our own mind, in our own intelligence, in our own strength, when really the people of God, when faced with trouble, need to be on their knees. Because that's where they're most powerful. I, I love this here. Your, verse, your, your, your version might say they prayed without ceasing. Here in the ESV it says earnest prayer. The idea isn't that they just had a 24-hour prayer service. The, the idea here that the actual Greek word is a, is a medical term for stretching to an extremity. It's the same word that's used of Jesus when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. The church doesn't just pray a lot or use a lot of words. They pray earnestly. Earnestly. When, when you pray like that, you, you pray with intensity. You, you pray for power, not just as an excuse. Sometimes we don't view prayer as a weapon. We use prayer as an excuse. Well, I, I prayed for it. If it doesn't happen, you know, I, I did what I could. That's not the way that we should use prayer. That's not the way that we should think of prayer. Prayer is often the tool that moves the hand of God. And God desires for his people to pray. God allows for things to come that we would pray. Because when we pray, we become dependent upon him. When we don't pray, we're dependent upon ourselves. Do you see the difference? That's what makes prayer so powerful. Because when we are engaged in serious, true, focused, intense prayer, we realize, God, I need you to do everything. Because I can't do this. And that's the moment that God likes to show up, isn't it? When it's not for us, when it's not for our glory, where it's not for our might, where we might not get confused and, and think, well, you know, he, he has a lot of cunning and skill and, and, and really crafted this and did a great job. No, it, God wants to be the one that receives all the glory in our life. We're going to see that as we go through here too. And so when we use prayer as a weapon against the enemy, God often shows up in incredible ways. Fourth, you can't destroy God's people because they have God's favor. Can, can we just take back the word favor from the name it and claim it preachers? I, I, we don't say it very often because it's used so bad so often. God's favor is upon you. He's for you. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> James was just murdered. But the reality of it is, if you know God through Jesus Christ, the, the love of God is for you. The favor of God is upon you. And that favor doesn't primarily show itself in this earthly life with the stuff of this world. But you have the, the peace and the love and the favor of God upon you. And nothing can separate you from his love. That's what it means to have the favor of God. And God's people have God's favor. And look at how this plays out here. Look at this. Verse 7. This is where it gets real fun. And behold. So he's in prison. He's changed the guards. He's 
snoring like crazy, right? He is out. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Okay, so angels are in God's presence. They radiate light often because they've been in God's presence, and he is light. So it's bright. He's still asleep. The angel, he struck Peter on the side, and what? He, he whacked him. <laughs> I love it. He whacks him, right? And, and he kind of, oh. <laughs> saying, get up quick. And the chains fell off his hand. And the angel said, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, wrap up your cloak around you and follow me. And he went and he followed him. And, and he did not know what was being done by the angel. If he did not know if what was being done by the angel was real or if he was seeing a vision. He is half awake. <laughs> Have you ever had that where you're like, you're like, I don't know if I did that or not. Okay. He's half awake. Verse 10. When they had passed the, the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. And abracadabra, poof, it opened for them on its own accord. And they went out in to, along the street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, <laughs> so, so now he's waking, he's standing in the middle of the street with the prison behind him and the gate open, and it finally kind of hits him when the angel leaves. Oh, this is really happening. <laughs> Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, I'm not sure... I'm not sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and, and all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, this is the second time that Peter's been led out of jail, this time much more dramatic. And, and the amazing thing about this story and the amazing thing about God's favor being upon Peter and God's favor being upon those who he loves, those who love Christ, those who are in a relationship with God, those who seek to, to know him and obey him. The amazing thing about God's favor is that when God's favor shows up, it is obvious that it's God's favor upon your life. There's nothing that Peter could go back and say that he did in this. He, he wasn't even fully awake. The angel kicked him to get him up, helped him up, told him to get dressed, said, follow me, let him out, the door opened, and now here he's standing. And, and, and I say that this is God's favor, and, and here's the application that I want to make to you and I. Again, this is not about promising you health, wealth, and happiness in this life. There are godly people and will be godly people who have suffered in this world and in this life. But if you live to honor God and you live to obey God, you will look back upon your life and you will look back at God's leading and the decisions that you've made during difficult times to follow the Lord. Times when you've been tempted to sin and to walk away and you have said, I'm going to trust in the Lord, I'm going to make my stand and I'm going to do what he says. You will see a pattern in your life when you look back where you see God's favor working in you, through you, before you and after you. And you will feel his love. And ultimately, you will know God's favor through all of eternity as you are redeemed as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Oh, it's foolishness 
to oppose God, isn't it? Isn't it foolishness? I, I, I mean, Herod thought, I, I'll, I'll get my guards, I'll get my gates, I'll get my prison, I'll lock them up, I'll kill them, they're going to love me for this. And God laughs. First John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God and we are. If you know Christ, if you have stopped fighting God in your life, stopped fighting against His Word and believed in His Son and received the Gospel, His love is upon you. What a wonderful thing it is to have the favor of God. Let's read on. I'm I'm just going to make a few comments as we read here. But verse 12, Peter's delivered to prison from prison. He's standing in the gate. And so what's next? Well, he wants to go and encourage the other believers. So verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. We're going to see more about Mark later. There where, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the gate. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. you got to love this, right? <laughs> Peter's here! And she forgets to open the door. <laughs> she runs to tell everyone else. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. Uh, I'll, I'll stop just for a second because there's a lesson here. What had they been praying for? For God to release Peter, right? We don't know the exact prayer, but I'm assuming God release him immediately, not let a hair on his little head be touched. You don't have to pray that for me. I don't have a lot of hairs, but, uh, but right, they're praying for him that he would be released. Here comes the servant girl saying, is at the gate? And they're going, no, you're crazy. What a lesson in prayer, isn't it? Often, we stop, don't stop to recognize what God has answered in our prayers. Let me encourage you if you've never done this. I, I'm, not, I'm not a big journaler. Because mainly when I write something down, I can't read it when I go back to look at it again. Um, I got a doctorate so I can have an excuse for my band, bad handwriting. Um, but, but do you have a place where, where you keep a record of big things that you've prayed for and the answers that God has given? Because it's so, it's so often, we'll pray for something. We know God has delivered and answered, and we're so excited, and we... We walk away from that moment and we forget. And so the next time that a trouble comes, we don't, we don't remember the faithfulness of God in the past like we should. So here, they're praying, God, would you deliver? And they're, and they're doing so and they're fervently stretching and, and, and excruciatingly praying. And yet, they also forget God's going to answer that and he's going to do it. Verse 15, they said, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting, he's there, I know it, I heard his voice. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Jews had this weird belief that every person had a guardian angel that looked like them. And so that's kind of what is going on here. Uh, Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. (laughs) I'm I'm here, guys. (laughs) 
he, he kept knocking, and they opened the door, and they saw him, and they were amazed. Mentioning to them with his, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers, and he departed and went to another place. And so he's, he's worried because he's standing out in the middle of the street. He's a wanted man that just escaped prison, and, uh, but he wanted to encourage them and show them that their prayers had been answered. Now, we've seen it's foolish to fight God because you can't destroy God's people. They, they have his presence, right? You can't take that away from them. They, they have his peace. They, they don't need to be anxious. They know God loves them and will deliver them. They have his ear. They have the power of prayer. And they have his favor. God loves them and cares for them and guides them, directs them, takes care of them. Here's the second big thing, and these are much smaller it's foolish to fight God because you cannot escape God's punishment. You cannot escape God's punishment. Look at verse 18. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> verse 19. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. So the first punishment we see here is we see the punishment of those who are complacent, those who participated in Herod's wicked and evil plan. It's a good reminder, God will not be made a fool. All wrongs will be made right. Sometimes God uses the hand of wicked and evil people to do his work and do his will. Think about when the nation of Israel was conquered. They were conquered and God allowed them to be conquered because of their sinfulness. And he, he allowed an individual to do that who was doing that for their own pride and their own glory. And here we see the same thing. These complacent soldiers who were part of it, they immediately faced judgment. While God sometimes uses wicked and evil men to bring about judgment in this case these 16 soldiers other times god swiftly and obviously brings about judgment himself that's what we read about that happens to herod it seems that though uh, herod was a bit embarrassed over what had happened and he's a bit embarrassed and and he retreats to the coast look at verse 19 then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and spent time that, from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon because and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blasterus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So so Herod goes to the coast and there there's these two free cities, Tyre and Sidon. They are a, an important port. City. We don't know exactly what the, uh, what the disagreement is, but, but I imagine it was probably something like this. They were charging exorbitant rates for, for duties and import fees, and, and so Herod, being angry at, at how they were treating him, he blockades and doesn't allow food to come to that region. 
And so these two nations, these two uh, governments are, are opposed to each other. And, and Tyre and Sidon, they realize that, that they've got to do something to appease Herod because they are in great suffering because they're not getting the supplies and the food that they need. And, and so they, they get somebody in the court of Herod, like his accountant, his treasurer, and they convince him that he should address them. We read about this in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, and he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. He got all fancy, right? He got out the big chair and the fancy duds, and, and he delivered to them a, a, a kingly address to the people, right? This, it's a big deal. Some of the, the Jewish biographers of the day uh, say that he did this along with a celebration to Caesar. That it, this was a, a huge event that he did, a big deal that he gets up, and he, he gives his little speech here. And the people respond, and they all start shouting, verse 22, The voice of God and not of man. The voice of God and not a man. They are just buttering his biscuit, aren't they? And he's eating it up. He's just eating it up. I mean, it's made for this. He's put on this big show. He's on the big seat. And he is just eating up them saying, the voice of God and not a man. This is a God before us. Herod is amazing. But God will not share his glory with anyone. Look at verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Sometimes God's judgment comes very swiftly and very obviously, doesn't it? And here, God's judgment falls upon Herod at the very moment where he's receiving that he is God. He has stood and he has opposed God. He has opposed God's plan. He has opposed God's people. He's tried to kill God's church. He's tried to kill God's apostles. He's tried to, to do everything that he can to stop God and stand against God. And now he has the goal to stand in a place and receive honor as though he is God. And God says, enough. It is foolish to stand in the place of God. Just when man thinks that he has exalted himself to glory, God will crush him to a place of humility. How we say so many in our culture today who openly and mockingly oppose God, oppose God's word, oppose God's people, who stand in positions of government in our own country, and do such things, who, who seek to, to limit religious liberty, who seek to limit freedom of religion and religious expression. They seek to do all of these things. They are standing and opposing God. And in the end, God will not be made a fool. It is a fool's task to stand against God. Now, Christian, our cause is not to take up all the culture wars to defend God's honor. That, that, that's a Muslim doctrine. That they have to defend Allah's honor. 
As Christians, we, we worship God and we love him, but we don't have to defend God's honor. You know why? God will defend himself. One day, he will make all things right. There is no sin, no evil, no wickedness that escapes his eyes or will fail to meet his justice. No one will escape his judgment. All of eternity will serve as judgment for those who do not place their trust in God. For all of those who would oppose God. For all of those who would revile Him and stand against Him and not submit to Him. God will have justice that will be shown. Last point, and this is a quick one. We've seen it's foolish to fight God because you can't destroy God's people. It's foolish to fight God because you can't escape God's punishment. Last, it's foolish to fight God because you cannot alter God's plans. Look at verse 24 and 25. But the word of the Lord, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they completed their service bringing with them John whose other name was Mark (laughs) Herod wants to destroy the church Herod wants to to knock out the apostles Herod wants to please the Jews and stop this group of Christians but God's plan is that the church would succeed and that the church will succeed and that the gates of hell will not prevail And so all this foolishness and all this silliness of arresting Christians, trying to stop Christians, putting them in jail, is just foolishness because in the midst of Herod's worst, the Word of God prevails. God's plan carries on. Amen? So it was in that day and so it is in our day. Men have tried to destroy God, they've tried to burn Bibles, they've tried to wreck churches, they've tried to do everything that they can, and the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel continues. Herod tried to stop God's plan, and all it did was serve to spread the gospel more. A man is a fool to fight God. I say to you this morning, if you've never come to Christ, if you in your life are bitter against God and are fighting Him, it is a fool's task that you will lose. Would you accept Christ as your Savior? Would you submit to God? Would you be made at peace with Him? That's what salvation is. Salvation is coming from being God's enemy to being at peace with God. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you trust in Him? If you're a believer and you've trusted in Christ, are you submitted to God? Are you submitted to his will in your life? Are are you fighting something? Are you fighting God? Perhaps there's there's something in the Bible that you know that God's word says, but, but you don't want to agree with it and you want to fight it. You will lose. Perhaps there's a calling upon your life, something that God has called you to in obedience or or something in your life that you know that he's called you to do, but, but you think it's too big, you're too unsure, and so you're not submitting to that thing. Don't fight God. It's a fool's 
task. Would you submit to him? What a great story, isn't it? How foolish it is to fight God, and yet fools come and come and come and come, don't they? And our God remains forever. Would you pray with me as we close?